Murphy Day, an awesome historic uh, building here. And we're here to celebrate some cracks in POMO, or also known as post-modernity. Uh, my name is Adam Stinchula. I am the designer of the zine that you may or may not have read already. I hope you have. If you haven't, you better pick one up at the end of the program. Okay, so we're going to get our panel up here and get this all started. And I'm going to start introducing everybody. Uh, first of all, the gentleman to my left is Steven, the main man, everybody. <laughs> Can I give it up for Steven? This is why we're here. You guys go ahead and sit. Steven is the curator and editor of Cracks and Pomo. He also hosts Cracks and Pomo, the podcast and Substack blog, in addition to working as a freelance writer and educator of philosophy and theology. So that is Steven here. Okay. Next up, we have Brennan Vickery. There we go. Oh, yeah author of Shriek of the Devil, The Gaze and Satan. He is a writer and artist living in New York City. So give it up for Brennan again. You guys, you guys swapped on me, uh-oh. Okay, next up is Nicholas Adubato. He is author of Where Did All the Ties Go? It is a junior studying philosophy and communications. Get up for Nicholas. And then finally, we got Matthew De Nicola. Sweet, did that. Whose photos appear throughout the zine. They are awesome. Um, and is a photographer living in Brooklyn. So give it up for Matthew. And myself, didn't think I was gonna be part of this one, huh? Uh, I am the designer of the zine and author of All Hail the Magic Conch Show. I work in film production and I go by Wafers 3D to my cooler friends, so. Um, but first, I'm gonna start a couple questions with Steven, if I can pop a squat here. So Steven, um, gotta go with the basics. How did this all start? How did Cracks and Pomo, the podcast and, and your literary work start? And then what made you bring it to uh, a zine format? So how did this start? Let's see. So no, when I was studying, I did my master's in theology. I was uh, doing a lot of work with history of ideas, intellectual history. And I found that the, all the things I was studying was helping me to understand a lot of questions that I've had about our society, about pop culture. And the more I looked at postmodern thought in itself, I realized there's something, there's something really insightful here. It doesn't cover the full story. There's something incomplete, and yet there's something really profound. So I thought I want to go deep into the cracks within postmodern thought, within postmodern culture, and, and delve all the way in look at my experience, look at what I see happening in the world through that lens. And, you know, so I started my own blog, I started writing. People told me, you know, people don't like to read, so why don't you do a podcast, try that out. But then at a certain point, I was like, I want this to be a communal effort. I want to invite other people into this, and I want them to contribute their thoughts. I want them to contribute their writing, their art. And this is how the idea of the zine started. Awesome. Um, so. How much, uh, obviously, given your influences, uh, please state them. Who, who influences you? What influences you? And uh, how much of your own experience, how much is really subjective in your work? And how much would you personally define 
as objective in this? So influences, I'll start with the most important, the fact that I have friends who have the same questions as me, who want to explore, I don't know, the deeper meaning of what's going on in life and society. Having people I can share that with is crucial, having that sense of community. On the intellectual level, I first have to say, I mean, obviously her name appears in here a lot. Camille Paglia is a huge influence. Let's, let's hear it for Camille. Everybody loves her. So, no, so Camille, obviously, is a huge influence. Um, also, Charles Taylor. Any Taylorites, Taylorians here? A couple. Not as big as Pallio, but... No, Taylor Taylor's a Canadian philosopher who really helped me to understand, um, I don't know, the concept of secularization, how it impacts the experience of religiosity today. Um, who is the other one I was going to say? Oh, Dorothy Day. Let's hear it for Dorothy Day. She's the reason we're here. No, because beyond the intellectual level, I mean, ultimately what it comes down to is like, I mean, what are we living for? How are we living our lives? The fact that Dorothy dedicated herself to, to community, to giving her life completely for the sake of love. Like, this is, this is what it's all about. So looking at her example, I mean, this is why I wanted to do the first event here at Catholic Worker. So those are, those are some of the influences. Awesome. Um, could you tell us, Stephen, what... What was the first crack in post-modernity? Like, what made you realize, whoa, what's going on here? Okay. So I'm going to take it all the way back to third grade. Um, some of you might have heard this story before. So now, in third grade, we were learning a lot about civil rights, Martin Luther King, who's right there in the corner. Um, I remember the first time I heard about his assassination as a kid. I was really shocked. I didn't understand why would someone want to kill someone who's trying to do good. It didn't make any sense to me. And it bothered me so much that like I stayed up that night, I started crying. I was just like, why is why is there evil? Like why are these messed up things happening in the world? And when I asked my teacher the next day, she was like, you know, I mean America has a history of racism and we have to try to do what we can to make America more just. And it's like, okay, yes, obviously that's true. But where does that impulse to do evil come from? Like why why does it exist at all? This, for me, was the first crack. What does that have to do with postmodernism? I mean, it's kind of vague, as postmodernism is itself. No, but the fact that I feel like, on one hand, in our culture, we have this, this concern about creating more just society, critiquing unjust power structures, which is, I mean, especially a big part of the post-structuralist train of postmodernism. On the other hand, there's this awareness of this profound emptiness this meaninglessness of existence that you see more in the existentialist philosophers. So I feel like that moment was where like totally cracked for me and I wanted to know like, okay, all this stuff is going on, what does it really mean? Are there answers? And um, as you, you know, first got cracked, hook on crack, um, <laughs> how, did that, how did that progress? Like, so when you decided to dive into to this, um, has, has your view on anything changed over the last couple of years, especially when you started the podcast? Has anything, have you really reversed on anything or have you really, is there any kind of topic that just, you know, naturally developed into something more than when you first started um, or anything interesting that you've discovered along your uh, POMO rave? No, I mean, I just discovered that I was right all along. I had all the answers. Um, no, no, what did I discover? I would say... 
What I discovered is the, the importance of trying to build a broad sense of community with people, with people who don't necessarily come to the same conclusions with me. And I think that's fair to say about all the people who wrote, who contributed, all the people here. Everyone has very distinct points of view, different beliefs. Um, but I think what we share is the awareness that these questions really matter. We really desire to go deeper into what's going on in the culture. So for me, branching out and meeting people who, again, have different perspectives, but really want to take these questions seriously, I, I found so much value in that. Um, but enough about me. We're going to talk about you now. So let's give it up for Adam again, because he designed this entire thing. And it looks, it looks pretty good. I think it came out pretty well. So let's talk about the design. Um, first of all, how did you design this? Where did you design this? Everyone wants to know. Uh, I, you know, I, I was a graphic designer in college for about six years, and I uh, proficient in InDesign, Adobe. Uh, just kidding, absolutely not. I did this on Microsoft Pages. Uh, you know, that's the punk way of doing things these days. Free software, so you yourself can make the cracks in Pomozine. All right, so talk about the design itself, though. Like, where did you get the ideas from? What's what's the, the logic behind this design? Um, well, I recall giving you a bunch of maximal ideas that you swiftly rejected, one after the other after the other, uh, until I said, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> um, and you didn't answer me in classic Stephen form. You just sent me a, a cover <laughs> that you did. And you said, well, here's the cover. Keep moving. And, and the cover was um, what you see there, just minus one finger. And uh, I don't know if anybody knows there's six fingers on the cover. Uh, so he sent me that picture uh, with, the, with the border, the color, um, and cracks in Pomo, the zine, and just the Times New Roman font. It was very completely radically different from what I was envisioning, which I think had Squidward tentacles on it. Um, so I just thought to myself, all right, this is what he wants. OK, how can I make this just spicier, something better? And I was just looking at this. I thought those hands, the way it was, I just thought, let me just add another finger on there. I, like, I want to punch because uh, you know, discovering your work, to me, when I first stumbled upon your Instagram, you, you DM'd me, and I, I was looking through it. I was like, I don't understand this. <laughs> and I just like, I think I blocked you, or at least I was just like, I'm just not going to look through this guy. Uh, and then I came back to it a second time, and I took a closer look. And as I took a closer look, that's when I realized, oh, I get it. So I kind of wanted to do that with what you had on the cover. And then everything else, uh, I just wanted to keep to that like minimalistic uh, vibe. But, but why the six fingers? Was it random, or was there, was there something behind it? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, you know, in the Illuminati, uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I picked Six Fingers just because I like the way his hands were. I'm really into conspiracies, and I think weird hand symbols are, are really ornate and interesting. And I wanted to create my own. So uh, if you're, I think we can move forward now. If you're a Cracks and Pomo disciple, put your hands up like that, and then just like grow another finger. And that's, that's our sign. That's our sign, guys, that you're a Cracks disciple. You like his work. Yeah, but what, what was fun about the six fingers? First of all, I didn't even notice it. But then when you pointed it out to me, 
I realized there was a connection to the intro that I wrote. And this was this was random. So now one of the lines that I wrote in the intro, uh, blah, 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 nature, art, and our fellow human beings can provoke us to contemplate eternal beauty and drag us down into an abyss of destruction. Sure, you can cover your eyes, but at a certain point, don't be surprised when something cracks through your fingers. So this was not planned at all, but then it all worked out. So this was, this was for me an interesting thing, working with Adam, because I don't do graphic design, I just write. Um, but just finding connections between the writing, the photos, you playing off with that, designing it. For me, that was a very interesting experience. Um, the other thing I wanted to add, what was the other thing about the design? Besides the CIA website. This, oh, the CIA. Okay, so the anybody recognize the address on the like the thing here? Nobody, nobody recognized it. Well, what, which part did you recognize? The title or the? Okay, so the title is Mary Jane Holland. Does anybody know who Mary Jane Holland is? Any Gaga fans? Art pop? The best album? No, okay, we're not gonna win tonight. So on her best album, Art Pop. She has a song called Mary Jane Highland, which is basically about how somehow, I don't know how it happened, she ended up having split personalities, very mysterious. Um, but then, connection to the address, what's the address? The CIA. The CIA headquarters. So I don't know, maybe they had something to do with Gaga's split personalities. We have no idea. We're not going to take any guesses. Uh, we're not talking about that tonight. Uh, this is being live streamed. We don't want to get canceled. You know. Sorry. Um, anyway, so let's get into your, your SpongeBob article, the longest one, because I was too lazy to edit it down. I was just tired and didn't feel like it. Um, talk about SpongeBob and absurdity. What, what, is, what is the connection? What are you trying to say in this, in this essay? Um, I just, I, I always thought, like, with all the 90s cartoons, you know, they tried to push the envelope with everything. Um, and that was very obvious and very aware. And they used, instead of absurdity or anything, like, what they used was just graphic content. Like, you look at Ren and Stimpy, you look at some weird stuff from uh, Cow and Chicken, Dexter's Laboratory, even Hey Arnold and um, Rugrats would have some weird stuff here and there. And it was always just sexual innuendos. That was really it, you know? Uh, and some really graphic, darker themes. But SpongeBob still had all that. It just opened up the windows, had a fresh coat of paint, and was just using absurdity, which is just perfect for a kid's cartoon because cartoons in general are absurd. So they were able to get away with all of this stuff while still dressing itself as completely absurd because it's uh, just a kid's cartoon. However, it wasn't. It was as dangerous as Ren and Stimpy, but still dressed up as a kid's cartoon. So that just ended up getting into all of our subconsciouses, every one of you, if you watch SpongeBob. Um, and now, since we are currently taking over as the next current generation, we are becoming SpongeBob SquarePants in every shape and form. Any SpongeBob fans? Yeah, the SpongeBob is pretty important. Okay, so we're gonna move on to Brennan. So Brennan, first, before I ask you a question, summarize what is your article about? What, what was behind it? What inspired it, et cetera? Well, I'm long-winded, so summarize. I got a couple lychee martinis running through my veins. But um, my article is essentially about gays. I often joke when I talk about gays, I go, this is not a referendum on gays. But I'm getting to a point where I'm like, this is a referendum on gays, because this shit is going left. Um, but my article is basically about 
Um, I touched upon um, Sam Smith's performance at the Grammys. If you guys saw Sam Smith, who's had like seven iterations at this point, first he was like skinny and Christian adjacent, kind of gay, and then he was like, no, I am gay and I'm getting a little bigger. And then he was like, oh, I've gotten even a little bigger, but now I'm queer and now I'm non-binary. And the gays don't really care about this. Um, who does care about this pandering? Um, and I hate to be a little like controversial or whatever, but it often is straight white women. They always respond to this shit, like always. And they like accessorize the gay. And then all of a sudden they're like, no, you don't understand. They're like the bureaucrats of culture. They just want to create like contract after contract after contract. And like, and, and the gays like, you know, they slurp it up because, no pun intended, but they do because, because oftentimes, you know, women have been the allies of like the gay men. It's often black women, but like white women as well. Um, so my article was essentially about how, uh, it was called like the shriek of the devil gays and Satan, essentially how like, you know, these pop culture, these gay pop cultural like fixtures are now like really, you know, they, they always do this thing where they like have to reference like Satan or like you, you see with Lil Nas X, right? Like you see this all the time. Um, I mean, God, I could go on forever because it's essentially about like, you know, this kind of like, uh, it's kind of like this repulsion from like Christianity or anything that's like godlike or religiosity because oftentimes, especially in Western Judeo culture, like, you know, the gay has been oppressed or repressed or whatever by like the Western Judeo Christian church. And I'm just saying like, this is, re this is reductive, this is redundant. It's been done a thousand times. I myself am not a religious person. I'm not a Christian, but I think it's, it's often banal, benign and boring to constantly reference like the church as like your like upbringing and your oppressor and your oppressor. And it's like, move on. And I think the best way to move on is through forgiveness. And then their turn is like transcendence. There is no roadmap for transcendence, I'm often curious about it, but I am so exhausted of this culture of like, this therapeutic verbiage that's like on and on about like, I know, but I, I'm self-aware, but like, I get it, but you don't understand. Are you in therapy? Analysis is better than DBT. DBT is better than CBT. It's like, girl, like you're just creating a whole new religion for yourself. And I could go on and on about this, you know, like, I mean, so, so my art, if you can't, if you can imagine. Um, so my article was about that. And essentially I referenced in the article also um, Lana Del Rey for those who read or maybe didn't read it. And what I was saying about Lana was she had um, on her latest album, you know, what was that? What was the name of the album? Under the la 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 la. Did you know there's a tunnel under? I love, um, I love that Alabama song. Anyways, Waffle House, shout out. But, um, you know, what I was saying about Lana, and I've made this case with many um, different artists. I made this case with Azealia Banks, um, you know, you, like using the term faggot and like the mainstream, because this is the problem that people have is like gayness becomes more mainstream. And I'm, I personally am speaking specifically to gay men. I can't speak to the whole like acronym that is the alphabet because I don't know. I'm a gay man. And what I do know about someone like Azealia Banks, I'm going to I'm gonna draw like a through line here in a little parallel with Lana is that like, you know, the mainstream doesn't get it. They wanna pretend that they get it, but they're like, Azalea's using the word faggot, she's homophobic, we should, but like go to an Azalea Banks concert, 99.9% of the audience is gay men. Why have they not canceled, you know, Azalea Banks and although like the mainstream press or whoever these, you know, 
banal, like masters holding, careerist, elitist writers have, like, we should get rid of Azealia Banks, is because the gay faggots know that Azealia is a faggot. Like, we know that, and we know that about Lana as well. And, like, the point I made in the article about Lana was that she had an, um, I was gonna say excerpt, but what is it? I mean, an album when you have a, um, a talking, what was it? An interlude, an interlude with, um, oh my God, I didn't do my homework, but even though I wrote about it, who's the pastor, Joseph Smith? Wait, is he? Judah Smith, Judah Smith, who back in my evangelical days, we knew Judah Smith, who obviously like has pronounced, you know, anti-LGBT, whatever, you want to say homophobic views and sermons like that. I'm not like a fan of him or whatever, but did I care that he was on the album? Absolutely not. Why? Because I'm like, Lana is exploring shit. She's an artist. She should be exploring so many things. Like, I don't care. And guess what? If you go to a Lana concert, who's in the audience? Women and gay men, for the most part. So it's like, stop, like, stop, like, you know, intercepting the discourse and like, putting yourself in between it and being like, they shouldn't because that's homophobic. I mean, I read this article. I mean, I don't know who they're paying to write these articles these days. I cannot imagine. But like this woman was like, you know, I was, she was like, I was listening to the interlude of the Judas Smith and like, you know, Lana had these little chuckles in there and obviously she was like laughing at the pastor and it's like, oh bitch, she's just like laughing because it's probably true to her heart. She's probably doing that thing, that evangelical like, you know, call and response. It's like, yes, Lord, yes. It doesn't matter. The point is it doesn't matter because Lana is not your political figure any more than Azealia is your political figure, any more than a gay is your accessory and a political figure. Gayness to me is not a political identity. It is, you desire boys, you desire, it's, it's like stop with this stuff and like, and letting everybody, sorry, I, let me shut up. Yeah. No, so, so two things. First of all, first of all, there's a lot to process. Give me a second. No, so the first thing, which I think is a theme that runs throughout this, I, we see a lot in our culture, there are these moral fixations, this, this return of Puritanism, as much as we say we're in a secular culture, we fixate on these, you know, using the right terms, you want to be on the right side. And I think the perspective that you're presenting shatters that and says, okay, let's, let's chill for a second. Let's think about the art. Like, let's think about art for art's sake, to quote Wilde. Um, because art is beautiful. Art can always be moralized into these nice, pristine boxes. But the other thing, you finish the article with this question. You say, instead of commenting on one's oppressor, so talking about these, these artists like Sam Smith, Little Nas X, who, you know, critiquing Christianity using satanic imagery, instead of commenting on one's oppressor, especially by embodying the enemy of them, what if one abandoned the whole gospel together? In other words, what if people just got over it and moved on? Um, so yeah, there's part... Yeah, isn't that like very palio, though? Uh, yeah. Move on, honey. Like, okay. Yeah, no. So, I mean, but it's, again, there's this part of it, I think, is this this moral puritanism, this fixation that makes people want to perpetuate the whole, you know, the oppressor. Um, but we're going to move on to Nick, who's also my brother. Um, so, Nick, you wrote the article, Where Did All the Ties Go? First, I want you to tell tell them about the introduction of this article. Paint Paint the picture for them. Talk a little bit about opera and what it means to you from there. Um, well, let's start with my grandmother, our grandmother. Um, she's a, she's a crazy person, a legitimately crazy person. She's a very Italian. Um, she can't pronounce words correctly sometimes, you know, but, um, 
she loves opera. She always has. I mean, I, I outline it in the the article. But as a child, she just, or when I was a child, I never understood it because she would come over our house and she would play Madame Butterfly or anything by Puccini and just start crying and like, you know, gesticulating all the different things happening in the opera. So. In the article, I, I outline the end of Madame Butterfly, where she kills herself, and my grandmother's sitting there like, ah, isn't this so beautiful? And I just never understood it, and it really turned me off to opera as a whole as a child, or really anything pertaining to death, um, because it, it, just, it, was, it was terrifying. I mean, I thought, how could she possibly think that this is beautiful? She explains that her husband left her for a younger woman, and how terrible it was, and she was so ashamed, and I don't know, but, but somehow this was the greatest story ever written. Um, and opera for me really meant nothing uh, other than that until I got to college and um, was exposed to it more and more, just, you know, actually one of the places I was exposed to it was uh, Cafe Reggio downtown, the other side, I don't know if anyone's a fan of that. Um, they're always playing opera, and I, and I liked it when I, was, I would go there, so. Um, but opera for me represents uh, something divine that we truly can't get a grasp on. You know, I don't remember who says this, um, but there's a quote that, you know, opera is like the truest art. It's like the, the wholest art. Um, you know, it incorporates writing, music, dancing, art, uh, theater, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, opera for me represents not only something truly divine and um, connected to me, you know, through my family and et cetera, et cetera, but also something whole and uh, holistic for a modern world full of cracks. So you talk about when you went to the Metropolitan Opera for the first time, and you had a question when you were going in. You asked, where did all the ties go, which is the title of the piece. So what does that question mean, and, and what is your answer to it? Um, yeah, I mean, I was wearing a tie that night. I was just, I was used to wearing a tie, just for general things. Um, but yeah, I walked in, and everyone's wearing jeans, kind of like how I'm dressed tonight. Um, I'm not wearing a tie because it's a thousand degrees, but um, yeah, I mean, I was, I would, I went, and everyone's wearing jeans and polo shirts and these blazers that have like really skinny lapels that are terrible and look awful. Um, and I was, you know, just like, where, where are the ties? Like, you, I don't know. The idea of wanting to look nice and presenting to something a little bit higher than yourself, uh, something I've always aspired to, and I, I just think it's something that's a little absent in our modern culture. And why that's the case is, you know, through kind of the uh, hegemony we have in this country that just totally uh, puts down and, and belittles and calls silly anything frivolous. Um, and in, in the article, that's what I point out, that the reason nobody's wearing a tie is because why would you even consider wearing something so ridiculous as an accessory, you know? Um, and part of that is just the, the idea of, perpetual utility and how much we, you know, ascribe to the church of um, efficiency and, and utilitarianism. Um, and that's something that I think opera totally uh, negates. And that's that was kind of my point. I was relating something seemingly unrelated to, like, you know, opera, which totally trans 
transfixes and, and goes against what we know in our modern zeitgeist. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think there's anything utilitarian about opera. I don't think there's any good use for it. So it all adds up. Okay, so Matt. Matt is one of our photographers along with Leslie. Where's Leslie? Leslie's there, one of our other photographers. There's Leslie. And me, I was also a photographer. Uh, that doesn't matter as much. So Matt, Matt and I, so we had, we had a plan. We had a plan to do a shoot with a certain person. Didn't work out, but we said, you know, we're here. Let's do what we can. Let's make it work. Um, so I just threw on the coolest stuff I had in my car, and we just roamed around the West Village, shot some pictures. So what was interesting to me, though, while we were taking the pictures is first, like, I don't know, the dynamic that we kind of had, like, vibing off of each other as you were taking pictures. I was, I don't know, just like trying to find places to pose, interesting places to, to stand in front of. So, yeah, but also like the fact that we're in the West Village, we're in Washington Square Park, it's a, it's a very particular space, as we all know. So I want you to just say a little bit about that dynamic of like when you're shooting someone, not shooting, obviously, um, when, you're, when you're doing a photo shoot with someone, like what is that like for you trying to vibe off the person, but also vibing off of a space, especially one like the West Village? Yeah, so uh, definitely, like, when I meet somebody for the first time, uh, I find it hard to start photographing them, especially if I don't know them. And this is, we had chatted a, a little bit online, but this is our first in-person encounter. Uh, so some of it is, like, meeting up, having a conversation, getting to know each other, and then maybe I can learn more about you so that I'm more informed when I'm thinking about photographing. Um, I think the camera can definitely be used sometimes to pierce um, someone's soul or really um, explore things that can't be explained with words that would be better expressed visually. Um, but sometimes I find that the camera can be used to hide, uh, hide myself uh, with my subject, and I definitely like photographing people. Um, so it was interesting because I got to learn more about you, and you had already had history with the space that we were in. I think that was the other important uh, element of the shoot, um, being around West Village, NYU, youth culture, and it was the springtime too. I think it was like new beginnings. This is issue one. And it's crazy to think also about the uh, synchronicity now that you're talking about uh, Cafe Reggio. Uh, we just had, maybe he already had it planned in his head where, where we'd go and photograph, but um, I mean, I went into the day not really knowing what to expect because uh, our planet fell through and, and I was almost gonna stay home, but I'm glad I went out. Uh, and that's kind of just a testament to New York is uh, a note to myself, you gotta get out and uh, connect with people and as we're doing tonight. Okay, so before we start wrapping up, we're gonna play a quick round of Hot or Not. So I'm gonna put some random thing out there and we have to decide, is it hot or not? So the first one, Elf Bar Vapes, are they hot or not? Uh, not. No? Does anyone have an Elf Bar in here? Okay, yeah. well, 
Yeah, we're judging you. No, it's not hot. Sorry. <laughs> All right, well, that's that's the next one. So Hestia cigarettes, hot or not? You have to say it's hot because they're sponsoring this event. We have free cigarettes in the back, so pick one up. So Hestia is very hot. Um, the Idol, is the Idol hot or not? What do, what do we say? We're, we're mixed, we're mixed. I have never watched it, Brennan's never seen it. So maybe it's not that important. Okay, so this one's recent. Twitter's rebrand as X, is that hot or not? It's hot? I don't think it's gonna last. It's a fascist rebranding, well, Elon, you know. Okay, we said the F word, we got it out. The other one. Um, all right, the big one, the one of, uh, of the century, Barbie, hot or not? No, boring, you don't care. Okay, Brennan doesn't care, so. Lukewarm, lukewarm, hot, hot, okay. We're, we're, we're mixed again. Um, dressing up like Barbie to go see Barbie, is that, it's not hot. No, don't post those pictures on Instagram. We don't care. <laughs> some of some of you might have looked good, but okay. Um, Oppenheimer. Does anybody care? Is it hot? Okay, so so Oppenheimer wins. Barbie loses. The next one, we know what Brennan's gonna say. I know what Nick's gonna say. Um, Lana Del Rey working at a fast food restaurant. It's very hot. It's very hot. That's yeah. Um, there's no, there's no controversy there. Bitcoin, is Bitcoin hot or not? No. In 10 years ago? Yeah, no. Um, another Twitter one. Twitter Anons. I know there are some Twitter Anons in here. Is that hot? I'm not looking at any of you right now, but I know who you are. Yeah, no. It's hot. Eh, sometimes it's embarrassing. Uh, last one. Slonking eggs? Is that hot? Does anybody slonk eggs? Some people. Oh, so what is slonking eggs? It's when you like you swallow raw eggs. I don't know what it's supposed to do, but okay. Last one, most important one, the Catholic worker. Oh. Okay. All right, so. The Catholic Worker. So I want to just say a couple of things about this space, why we're using it. So no, the Catholic Worker, founded by a servant of God, Dorothy Day. Dorothy Day, if you don't know, um, grew up in Chicago, moved around the U.S. Was someone who was very, very curious to understand the suffering of the poor, wanted to understand social injustice, but also was someone who loved beauty, whether it was in art, nature, music. And she always, kind of like what I was saying before about the Martin Luther King, like he, she always had these big questions and was searching constantly. So she eventually made her way into certain leftist circles in the city, but still she wanted to know like, is there some higher truth? Is there some greater meaning? Eventually she did convert to Catholicism. And her big question after converting is, how do I merge my newfound faith with my dedication to social justice, to responding to the needs of the poor? So. Out of, out of nowhere, this random French guy shows up on her doorstep, Peter Morin, and says, you know, I've heard about you. I want to start some organization with you. And that was the day the Catholic worker was born. So Mary House, where we are right now, this is one of the first Catholic workers in the world. Um, St. Joseph House, some of you went there by accident because you didn't look at the direction on the flyer. Uh, it's two, two blocks down. That's for the men. 
Uh, but the Catholic worker, both Mary House and the St. Joseph House, serve people who are hungry, who need a place to stay, who just want hospitality, people to, to have community with. And Dorothy Day did live here for a significant portion of her life. She lived and died in one of the bedrooms upstairs, really, really beautiful room. Um, but no, I wanted to use this space because, again, because of how much Dorothy has inspired me, but also how much this place and the people here embody what we're trying to do with Cracks and Pomo. So um, we will be collecting donations for the Catholic worker. On the table in the back, you'll see a little golden box. Please do offer a donation just to support the work that they're doing here. Um, other than that, what else do we have? On the table, we also have some of the, the little Cracks and Pomo cards with the QR code. You can take one of those. If you want to buy a hard copy, come see me. We're running low, we're almost out, but we still have a couple left, so let me know if you want a hard copy. Um, we have some art on the table as well by Erin K. McAtee. She's one of the artists who contributed here. So she has some cars that you can take, and then other pieces, you just want to take a look at them. Um, yeah, so we'll, after Hallow performs, you guys can get more food and drinks, take a Hestia, but don't be greedy, just take one. Um, and obviously don't smoke in here, please go outside, be courteous. Um, yeah, you know, fascists. Um, other than that, okay, no. um, we gotta be out by nine, so don't linger, don't make these people have to work harder than they already work. But, um, so Hallowed, Hallowed's about to come up and perform, let's hear it for Hallowed. Adam's gonna introduce Adam. Adam's gonna introduce Hallowed as we file down. Okay, let's. Oh, holy heck! Let's uh give it up for all the panelists again one more time, guys.